Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Faber. Pastor Jonathan Mason, and I want to welcome you back into the pastor's office. But listen, we've got a great show today, but I want to get right into it uh, because there are some issues going on in our city uh, that we've got to talk about, that we've got to deal with. We had members of council on the show over the last couple of weeks, and uh, one of the things that we talked about in those interviews uh, was the new curfew law that is going into effect or that has gone into effect this summer. And we certainly celebrated the council person that authored this legislation and got it through council to the mayor's desk and then back to the clerk of the council and now being implemented throughout the city. We got to bring all ideas to the table. We've got to bring all resources to the table in order to deal with this violence that is plaguing Philadelphia streets. You know the story. Just a few days ago, James Lambert was beaten to death in the 2100 block of Cecil B. Moore Avenue by teenagers. Teenagers. Number one, we've got a family that's grieving because they'll never be able to hug on one of the elders of their family again in Brother Lambert. But now we've got the families of several of these teenagers who will, in most cases not be able to spend time with their young people going forward. These young people's lives are now changed forever. They've got to live with this. They've got to pay a price for this. But these type of crimes are happening all over our city. So, again, as I said earlier, we got to bring all ideas and resources to the table, and that's why I want to bring into the pastor's office Council member at large, Catherine Gilmore Richardson, uh, who authored legislation for curfew changes in Philadelphia. And then we're also going to talk about the community evening resource centers that she got funding for last year to help us deal with this matter. Councilwoman Gilmore Richardson, welcome into the pastor's office. Come on in and have a seat. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Pastor Mason, for having me. So now now, now I, I got to say this uh, uh, before we get started on a very serious topic. When I say welcome into the pastor's office now, you know, uh, Pastor W. Lonnie Herndon is now doing an afternoon show uh, on Philly's Favor that is getting rave reviews. And he shares with me that uh, when I mention your name, oh, I know her. She, she, she's at the church almost every Sunday. Now, I, I'm just talking about equal time, Councilwoman. Every now and then I I need to see you at Northeast. Can you do that for me? <laughs> Listen, we're going to be back at Northeast Baptist Church, uh, one of my other uh, favorite churches. 
we love to worship with you all, and we certainly will be back. I love uh, Pastor W. Lon and Herndon. I mean, all the work they're doing at Church of Christian Compassion. Love the radio show. I just saw Pastor Terry Lynn uh, downtown uh, the other day for uh, their Bible study, and, and they are just a stellar church uh, with a wonderful CDC doing great work in the community and even operating one of the community evening resource centers. Um, and Church of Christian Compassion changed the direction of my campaign when I was running for office, and I will never, never forget them. In all seriousness, I want to, before we jump into the topic, uh, you've never forgotten about us. Every, every, you know, every time you have items to give away to the community, you remember Northeast Baptist Church when we were doing vaccinations and when we were doing uh, testing. You never forgot about us. Uh, and so I want to thank you. And you, you know what? You didn't even forget my anniversary a couple months ago, and you sent a letter for that. So we appreciate the attention that you've given to our community, to the community of Frankfurt. We could we appreciate the work that you're doing because as one of the newer council members, man, you hit the ground running and the city is better off for the initiatives that you've ushered in. Let's talk about that now. Now, certainly you are aware of what happened with Brother Lambert just, uh, just last week, and you had the foresight to realize that we needed to do something about these curfew times this summer. Talk to us a little bit about how you brought this to fruition. Sure. Well, first, I think it's important to recognize that we are in a state of emergency relative to gun violence uh, here in the city of Philadelphia. And what we've seen over the last several years is that more and more young people uh, are involved in more criminal incidents and being shot simply because they are out uh, past curfew. And so once we looked at the data, we determined that we needed to implement a summer curfew uh, just for the summer months for young people uh, here in the city of Philadelphia. And I introduced the legislation uh, before we concluded. The legislation passed unanimously um, and was signed by Mayor Kinney, uh, last week. So it's only been one full week uh, that this new modified summer curfew has been in place for minors in the city of Philadelphia. And I have to tell you, Pastor Mason, when I saw that video of Mr. Lambert and those young people in North Philadelphia, my heart was broken for his family and for uh, everyone uh, across the Philadelphia community. It was so difficult to watch and know that young people were involved and engaged in that type of activity and outside at 2.30 in the morning. And I immediately, about uh, two days later, was already pre-scheduled for a ride-along with the police department in the 22nd Police District where that incident occurred. And we were out on Cecil B. Moore between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. We went from 10th Street all the way down to 29th and beyond, uh, just going around that community, letting the young people know about the new modified summer curfew and encouraging them to get to a safe space. But we all have to do more to help our young people, to provide them with resources and ensure we can try to keep them safe. Councilwoman, it just, you know what, it just blew my mind because... Okay, I'm a, I'm a child of the 70s. Uh, I was born in 72, uh, so that means I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, at that time of night, there wasn't no question where I was going to be. I was going to be in my bed. I was exactly. my, my parents weren't going to tolerate anything other than me being in the house and being asleep. And I just I applaud what you're doing, but it also comes down to what are our parents doing, you know, yeah. with our children that they would be out in these dangerous streets at this time of night. That also has to tug on your heart. 
No, it does, obviously. And, and this is not just an approach, you know, that's around what government can do. As a parent of three young people in the city of Philadelphia, I don't understand it either. But we recognize that not everyone is in the same space and place. It may need different resources and assistance. And, you know, me personally, when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s in Philadelphia, I was never out that late. My parents knew exactly where we were at whatever time it was through the day. So it, it, it is mind-boggling to see young people out that late at night, but we don't know the circumstances of each individual case, and that's why we're seeking to put this curfew in place, enforce the curfew, and help young people with resources. So let's talk about, let's talk about enforcement and let's talk about resources. So first, let's talk about enforcement. So the curfew was moved from midnight back to 10 p.m. Teenagers 16 and above are supposed to be in the house by 10 p.m. Am I correct on that? Yes. So young people under 13 are supposed to be in the house by 930 and 14 to 17 year olds must be in by 10 p.m. Got it. So now let's talk about enforcement. Uh, If you see a young person out or if the police see a young person out after those time periods, then what happens? So the first thing the police department will do is seek to unify or reunify that young person with their parent or guardian. That's the first step. And so um, if they can take them back home and they're close enough, they will reunify the young person with their parent or guardian. Second step is if you can't get in touch with the parent or guardian and if they're close enough, uh, either in South Division or Southwest Division, they will take the young person to a community evening resource center. We have one located at Dixon House uh, at 1920 South 20th Street off of 20th and Mifflin, and they're open every single day of the week from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m., and we have a second location uh, located at uh, Community of Compassion CDC at 6150 Sear Avenue uh, in the southwest section of Philadelphia. And we are slated to open two more centers uh, in about three to four weeks, uh, one in north uh, Philadelphia and the other in northwest Philadelphia. And so um, if they're unable to uh, even get them to a community evening resource center, say they're too far uh, as of right now, then they will take the young person to the police district until they can be reunited with a parent or guardian. Got it. So now let's talk about the resource centers. And I've had, obviously, with uh, Pastor Herndon and team starting a program on our station, I've had a chance to spend a good amount of time over in his part of the city. I've had a chance to see the resource center and the work that they're doing. Talk to us about some of the services or what a young person will find when they are experiencing those resource centers. Sure. Well, first, they are connected to uh, resources. They have an intake process when they arrive, and then they're connected to any resources they may identify themselves. But while they're at the center, they have an opportunity uh, to engage with other young people, caring staff uh, who are trusted messengers uh, in that local community with real fun activities. And some of the stuff they have, uh, even at Christian of Compassion CDC, uh, is a drone class. Uh, cops and cameras program for a photography class. They have financial literacy um, and all types of fun programs that the young people can engage in. And when I was at the Dixon House, they had young people doing yoga. They have a fun game room. They have financial literacy, a computer class, um, and all types of activities that the young people just love. And so we really want them to be in a relaxed, fun environment uh, where they can feel safe but also receive the resources they need. And there's also resources available for their families members as well. 
You're listening to Philly's favorite 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We're talking to Councilmember Catherine Gilmore-Richardson about the new curfew law that's been put in place and also about the, the community evening resource centers that she has started up. What's the vision long-term for the resource centers? Do you How many are you anticipating opening uh, over the next uh, 12 months? Sure. And so currently we have two in place, um, two more slated to open, as I stated, in North Philly and Northwest Philly. It is my goal to have a resource center located in every single police division of Philadelphia. And so we're working, obviously, on Northeast um, Philadelphia. I'm going to uh, fight for additional funding in the fall uh, to have a Northeast center. And then we also uh, are working diligently to get a center open in the East Division of Philadelphia as well. So we would have six total. Outstanding. Outstanding. You know, with all that we're doing, and I, I was talking to one of your colleagues last week, Councilmember Green, and with all of the ideas that are being brought to the table right now, it still seems like violence in our streets is escalating. And one of the things he and I talked about was we have got to, and I love what you're doing because it's grassroots, you know, our ideas have to be grassroots based. And then we've got to arm, you know, our nonprofit organizations that are already doing the work with resources to expand their operations. I mean, talk to us about some of the other ideas that you're thinking about or that you've seen colleagues implementing that are going to help us bring this down. And let's be clear, this is not just happening in Philly. Uh, This is happening in urban settings all across our country. This gun violence is out of control. But talk to us about some of the other plans and initiatives that can really help us curb this violence. No, I completely agree with you, Pastor Mason. Uh, Definitely must engage uh, with the community organizations on the ground doing the work. They are trusted messengers in the community, know what's happening in those specific areas, and really know and recognize um, how to get to and work with our young people. And so we have to resource of those opportunities so that we can have a larger footprint across the city, because I think we all recognize that government cannot do this alone. It takes collective and collaborative uh, work, both from the public and private and nonprofit sectors to get this done. And so I think we have to continue to fund that work, and council has done that in our uh, most recent approved budget, uh, just as we did last year, investing more than $180 million in gun violence prevention and intervention, um, ensuring that we are resourcing uh, organizations. But we have to do more. That's still not enough. We must do more to ensure we are um, funding all organizations across the city that are helping our young people and helping to keep them safe. Before we, before we jump, I, I want to jump back to July 4th. Two police officers were shot over on the Ben Franklin Parkway. The mayor made a comment that he'll be glad one day when he is no longer in office, when he can actually enjoy things again. And you had a little something to say about that. You said, uh, you either in or you're out. I read your press release. I read the articles that came out as a result uh, of the press release. Have you had a chance over these last couple of weeks to connect with the mayor, to have some dialogue, you know, because one of the things I said on the show last week is it seemed like it was a moment where his humanity showed through. And any of us that have been in in heavy leadership positions, heavy servant leadership positions, every now and then there's a crack in the armor. 
you know, mm-hmm. and and so I, that's what I saw. But but my my thought, because we're all working towards the same end goal, you know, have you guys had a chance to talk and really, you know, kind of kind of figure out where we are? Sure. Well, I've had the opportunity, I think, a day or so later to actually meet with the mayor's uh, entire team uh, talking about the uh, curfew uh, and ensuring that we were ready, you know, since the mayor signed the bill. And, and I've worked closely with his administration team uh, throughout the uh, time, not only uh, in office, but previously when I was a staffer. And so I've had the opportunity to uh, connect and continue to work closely with his team. And that's the only way we're going to do this is working together. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing that work. Well, listen, we want to thank you so much again for gracing us with some time to talk about this curfew, to talk about the resource centers. Can you do me a favor and share with our listeners where they can find out more information? Absolutely. And so you can find out more information about the Community Evening Resource Centers by calling my office at 215-686-0454. Again, that's 215-686-0454. Or go to any of our social media pages at Councilmember Catherine Gilmore Richardson or Councilmember KGR. And we'll be more than happy to help you uh, connect a young person to the Community Evening Resource Centers. And I think it's important to note uh, that uh, you can go to the centers uh, voluntarily and just hang out for the night if you want to. If you have no place to go, if you don't have a babysitter for your young person, send them to the Community Evening Resource Center, and they do provide transportation home. Outstanding. Listen, this is what government is all about, to be able to see uh, the genesis of an idea, to see it be able to move through council be passed, be signed, and now be an execution. It's got to be a joy to your heart. And I want to congratulate you on making this a reality with the curfew and with the resource centers. Now, before I let you go, next week is a big week for you. And for finer women all across this world, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Yes, well, thank you, Pastor Mason. I am so pleased, proud, and excited uh, to welcome the finer women of the best sororities, Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated, to the great city of Philadelphia, the city of sisterly love. And we are going to paint uh, the city of Philadelphia royal blue and white next week for our international convention, uh, also known as our Grand Boulet, uh, where we will have more than 6,000 uh, registered attendees uh, doing service uh, in and around the city of Philadelphia, uh, providing scholarships and handling the business uh, of our great uh, sisterhood. We We will also have some fun along the way and have some wonderful activities uh, and partnerships, uh, not only with Macy's, but other organizations. And we're going to have an opening ceremony and a concert uh, with my favorite singer, Mary J. Blige. So I'm looking forward to uh, connecting uh, with my sorors and welcoming them here to the great city of Philadelphia. And I know uh, we will have a wonderful time. And we also thank our brothers of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated for having their leadership summit here uh, during the same time. Listen, and and we're expecting here in Philadelphia about $7 million in spending as a result of this boule coming into our city. Uh, I can't wait, can't wait. I want to tell you, Philly's favorite listeners, make sure you are listening to the W. Lonnie Herndon Show next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, because each day there will be a representative from Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated being interviewed on his show. 
show to also include uh, the international grand Basilisk, Soror Valerie Hollingsworth Baker, and, and 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 during that opening ceremony, guess who gets the privilege of introducing the Grand Basilisk, Soror? Now let me guess, <laughs> not our very own Pastor Jonathan A. Mason. We got not to, our very own. We got to take them to church, dear. We got to take them to church, yes. so we're gonna do that. We haven't been together in two and a half years, so we go going to church before she gets introduced. Absolutely, I know you're going to take us to church. And we're going to have a wonderful time uh, here this week in the great city of Philadelphia. Well, listen, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Continue the great work you're doing. And as I've always shared with you, these airwaves are yours for any initiative uh, that you are bringing forth that's going to better our community. God bless you, ma'am. And we'll talk to you real soon. And tell President David I said hello. Will do. Thank you so much, Pastor Mason. And we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. And I again want to thank council member Catherine Gilmore Richardson uh, for joining us here today to speak about the Community Evening Resource Centers and to speak about the change in the curfew time for our teens. Let's work to keep our streets safe. Let's work to keep our young people safe. But now I want to pivot. Anybody who's been listening to my show over the last two years knows that I am a proud member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, anybody that has listened to my show for the past two years knows that I'm a former international president of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity 2013 to 2017. Prior to my presidency, I was the vice president, international vice president, uh, from 2009 until 2013. One of the things that was under my purview as vice president was everything impacting membership. And during that particular period of time, one of the major challenges that I was tasked with tackling uh, was hazing. This is an issue of which I've got a lot of experience. One of the things that I thought about as I was tasked to handle this culture of hazing that exists in our fraternities and sororities, one of the things I thought about was the fact that we've got to counter propaganda with propaganda. Propaganda, for for anybody that studied history, plays a key role in changing minds and changing situations. I mean, Hitler used propaganda to take over a whole country uh, and do terrible things. But propaganda can also be used for the good. So uh, my idea was to connect all of the divine non-organizations and implement an international anti-hazing campaign to hire a an esteemed advertising agency to put together a campaign that would run on radio, television, in school newspapers, uh, with workshops. I put together a comprehensive plan that I really felt would help us change the culture in these organizations and the mindset. Uh, we put that in front of the Council of Presidents for the National Panhellenic Council. Uh, I remember in 2011, uh, and again, had the advertising agency called the Uniworld Group, led by one of the icons in advertising. And the council voted down the initiative. Voted it down. Every organization was dealing with hazing. 
several of the organizations have had to deal with hazing deaths. They voted down this initiative. So I came back to my organization, and I asked our board to approve this initiative for Phi Beta Sigma to do this on its own. It was uh, high six figures to implement, but our board approved it. And over the next two years, we implemented a very comprehensive and strategic anti-hazing campaign. It had never been done before. Television, newspaper. As a matter of fact, our kickoff was done in D.C. uh, at the National Press Club. And believe it or not, we had press from all over the country come to cover our press conference announcing this initiative. Here's what I can tell you. I'm not going to say Phi Beta Sigma no longer has a hazing issue, but I can tell you that all of the lawsuits that had come forward and all of the hazing incidents that had come forward in our organization from the time I started working on the national board until the time I left this presidency, we really aren't seeing those issues anymore. We really are not seeing these issues anymore. So there's something to be said for attacking this matter head on. The other thing I can tell you is that when you're dealing in a a fraternal organization, your highest expense after payroll is insurance because there are only a few companies that are going to insure fraternal organizations because of the risk of hazing issues. Our highest expense. During my presidency, I'm happy to say our insurance costs went down every year because our incidents went away. But in 2022, we are still dealing with hazing incidents in fraternities and sororities all across this land. Millions of our young people join these fraternities and sororities. Millions. Let me say that again. Millions. So this cannot be looked at as a small matter. Many of your children, when they go to school, are going to join fraternities and sororities. Is somebody going to subject your child to beatings, to excessive drinking, to doing other things that may endanger their lives? Well, I want to talk to a gentleman that has been dealing with hazing cases for the last 30 years. He's currently representing the family of Danny Santuli, who received horrific injuries as a result of hazing from the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity on the campus of the University of Missouri. I want to welcome into the pastor's office for the very first time, Attorney David Bianchi. Attorney Bianchi, come on into the pastor's office. Let's have a seat and talk about this thing. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, nice to be here. Well, talk to me a little bit about Danny Santulli and what happened to him as a student at the University of Missouri. Sure. Um, I've been uh, representing victims and families of victims of hazing for 30 years all around the United States, and I can honestly tell you that this is the worst fraternity hazing injury ever in the United States Last October, when he was a freshman pledge at the University of Missouri, he was brought to the Fiji House with about 40 other freshman pledges. 
They were blindfolded, had to take their shirts off. They were paraded down to the basement. And then they had 40 fraternity members lined up in front of them. They then removed their blindfolds, and they each met their pledged dad for the very first time. It was a traditional event held every October called Pledge Dad Reveal Night. And the concept of this tradition is each pledge is handed his family bottle of alcohol that is passed down through the generations. And Danny Santulli was uh, handed uh, a bottle of, of vodka by his pledge dad, and each pledge got a different kind of alcohol. And the expectation is, is that you will drink all of what has been given to you very quickly. So over the course of the next two hours, Danny proceeded to drink an entire bottle of vodka. In the middle of the whole thing, uh, a fraternity member came along, put a tube in his mouth with a funnel at the other end, and poured beer down his throat. And what is so remarkable about this horrific case is that the whole thing was captured on video because there were surveillance video cameras throughout the entire house. And we have all of the surveillance video, so we know exactly what happened. And after he consumed all of this alcohol, not surprisingly, he collapsed. And they put him into another room and dropped him on a couch and never bothered to call 911. And uh, eventually they panicked because they thought he might be dead because he didn't look like he was breathing. And again, instead of calling 911, they thought they'd take him to the hospital in somebody's car, and they carry him down a hallway, holding him upside down by his ankles. And then again, it's on video. They drop him on his head, and they get him out of the building into a car, drive him to the hospital, and when he gets there, he is dead. His heart is not beating, and he is not breathing. Medical personnel come out. They jumpstart his heart with CPR, and uh, he lives. But he has been left permanently blind. He cannot see, cannot speak, he cannot walk, he cannot communicate in any way, and he cannot care for himself. And he will live like this for the rest of his life. My God. My God. Wow. And after 30 years of dealing with these types of cases, I just want to repeat, this is the worst you've ever seen. Uh, unquestionably the worst, and I will tell you, it's a, an identical tradition that I've had in other cases. For example, in the Andrew Coffee case in Florida State in Tallahassee, he was subjected to Pledge Dad Reveal Night by a different fraternity, but it was an identical set of facts in every way, except instead of getting the family bottle of vodka, he was given the family bottle of bourbon. And he drank so much alcohol that he died. He didn't live. And both uh, Andrew Coffey and Danny Santulli ended up with blood alcohol readings of 0.468, which, as you may know, when you drive a car, you're presumed intoxicated at 0.08. That's right. And these guys were 0.468, which is approximately six times the legal limit to drive a car. The human body cannot live with that much alcohol. I, I'm stunned. I, I, I really am stunned. So you were called in to handle this case by the family. Talk to us. I want to talk about two things. First, let's deal with the personal. This happened in October of 2021. So it's not a, it's not an aged incident as it were. Talk to us one about how Danny is handling this. And I know he can't talk. But talk to us about how his family 
is 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 dealing with this? Well, you know, it's been my experience with uh, having so many of these hazing cases over the years that for some reason these things seem to happen to the best of families. And if you were to meet the Santuli family, and if you were to meet Andrew Coffey's family, they're some of the finest people I've ever met, not just as a lawyer, but just as a human being, the finest people I've ever met. And they've all been devastated by what's happened. And the Santulis have moved Danny into their home, and they are attempting to care for him at their house. And they've rallied around him, not because they can't afford to put him someplace, because they can as a result of the case, but they don't want to do that. And they're they're, every single day they take care of him, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they just pray and they hope that something good might happen, even though, given the extent of his brain damage, there's a 0% chance that he's ever going to make any sort of a recovery. And the families just find a way to carry on day after day, and it's just terrible. Attorney Bianchi, uh, clearly you've had an opportunity to study this culture of hazing that I spoke about in my introduction, to talk to university officials, probably to talk to researchers who have, have done a lot of work in this area, In 2022, why is this culture still prevalent on our college campuses? Why have we not been able to eradicate hazing? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. And let me just put one fact out there for you. Since the year 2000, 65 fraternity pledges have died from hazing. If you do the math, that's one every four months. Some people think that hazing is kind of a thing of the past, that it happened in the 50s and the 60s, and it's kind of over now. Just the contrary is true. It's worse today than ever. Why have we not been able to eradicate it? Because we haven't been tough enough in trying to eradicate it. It requires a different approach. Establishing anti-hazing policies at the university level and anti-hazing statutes on the books of the laws of each state, that's all well and good but it doesn't do anything. We still have more deaths than ever, even though virtually every major university and every major fraternity has an anti-hazing policy on the books. And most places require the Greek communities to congregate in September in a gymnasium where they put them all in there and they tell them you can't haze and this is what hazing is and here's what might happen to you. And they try to uh, scare them and they just walk out and they do it anyway. So this present process is not working. We need to try something different. And I think what needs to be done is a couple of things. Number one, there should be a policy that says if hazing occurs at a fraternity chapter where someone is seriously injured or dies, every fraternity officer will be immediately expelled from the university, no questions asked. And that does not happen. Because the people that are in a position to stop all of this are the fraternity members themselves. You can't stop this with the parents who live a thousand miles away. The president of the university can't babysit every chapter house every Friday night. That's not going to work. It's got to be the fraternity members themselves have to stop it. But they don't think there's a consequence for doing this. So there should be a no questions asked expulsion policy for every officer if this continues to happen, number one. And number two, you need prosecutors who have the courage 
to file the criminal charges under the hazing statutes that are currently on the books in 48 out of 50 states. And for example, in Danny Santulli's case, which is going on right this minute, worst hazing injury case ever, the prosecutor in Boone County, Missouri, has only filed felony charges under the hazing statute in Missouri against two fraternity members. And there should be about two dozen that are getting charged, two dozen, but he's only filed against two. So all the rest of them think they're getting a free pass. By contrast, in the Coffey case out of Tallahassee when Andrew Coffey died, the prosecutor in Tallahassee had criminal charges filed under Florida's hazing statute within 60 days of the hazing event. And within 90 days of the hazing event, the first fraternity member started to go to jail. And by the time he was done, all nine went to jail. And in the Santuli case, that's not happening. In the Cialis case, another case I worked on, that was out of Cornell. Antonio Cialis attended a hazing event at a fraternity up in Cornell. He ended up dying. And the prosecutor in Ithaca, New York, did not file hazing charges against anybody. So we have prosecutors that are not tough enough. We have universities that are not tough enough. And the fraternity members think they can do anything. You're listening to Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We are talking to attorney David Bianchi about the case of Danny Santulli. Just to recap, Danny Santulli was hazed on the campus of the University of Missouri by the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity, and he has had life-altering injuries to the point where he is blind, he can't talk, he can't use his arms, he, he, he's just, his quality of life is, is basically zero at this point. All as a result of hazing, and Attorney Bianchi is representing the Santulli family. Uh, Attorney Bianchi, why are the prosecutors so weak? You know, one, one theory is, you know, many of them came up through the fraternity and sorority ranks, and, you know, they have in many cases a soft spot for fraternities or sororities. Is that what you're seeing? Uh, do you think that's kind of a root cause, or, or what else is it? I don't know the background of these prosecutors to know whether they were in fraternities or not. So I, I'm not sure about that, but I do know that it's entirely hit or miss around the country with these hazing cases in terms of whether or not there's aggressive criminal prosecution. It, com- it depends entirely on who the prosecutor is. Some are tough and some are not, but uh, not enough of them are tough enough. And it sends all the wrong messages to these fraternity members who go about their lives the next day after these things happen while the victim is going to pay the price for decades and decades to come. And the community needs to stand up and say, enough is enough. We demand that the prosecutors do their jobs and enforce the hazing law. There's a website that was started by people that are just furious about what happened to Danny Santulli. It's called justiceforDannySantulli.com. And as of today, there are over 100,000 signatures from people all over the country furious about this and demanding that the Boone County prosecutor file hazing charges. And if you go on there and read the comments, just read the comments by the people signing the petition, and you'll get a sense for how they feel. And they are very, very upset. Another thing that I I would bring up to you 
One of the things we did in, in our organization is when there was a verified hazing incident, we immediately revoked the charters. And that that shook up fraternity members because not only what did it impact the young men that were on the campus at the time, but now if this is a legacy chapter that's been around 30, 40, 50, 60 years, now all of a sudden all of those generations are looking at the young men on campus like our chapter no longer exists. We, you know, we need, we didn't just revoke chapters, but if years later they wanted to come back, we wouldn't give them that name back. We wanted to erase any connection to that bad behavior. You know, I think that's another thing that universities and fraternities and sororities have to look at. I don't care if the incident is severe or not. If it's hazing, revoke those charters. Get them off the campus. Well, you know, that is really the way it works almost all the time these days. That's going on almost all the time. That That is what is happening. But it's a little bit like closing the barn door after the horse gets out, because by then the damage has been done. And I agree 100%. You need to do it. Don't get me wrong. you got to do it. But you're trying to go back a few steps on the timeline to figure out what can be done so that you never get to that point. And, and by contrast... Look at what happened at the University of New Hampshire. There's a recent hazing incident at the University of New Hampshire. It happened very, very recently. And the prosecutor has so far filed hazing charges against 70 uh, college students. 70 fraternity members have been charged with hazing. And there was, uh, based on the press reports, no injuries of any significant consequence that we know about. Certainly nothing remotely close to the Santuli case or the coffee case or the Cialis case, and yet that prosecutor is super aggressive, and he's already charged virtually every member of the chapter under the hazing statute. So somebody's got to be tougher. Understood. Well, first of all, let me say this. Let me say thank you for standing up for families who have been victim to this thing called hazing. It is certainly not a small issue. I'm sure, Attorney Bianchi, that you'd like to see hazing eradicated, and then you'd have to practice some other areas of your law practice, but um, I think we're going to be dealing with this matter until, like you say, we get a little bit tougher on the offenders. I agree with you, and I hope that day comes sooner rather than later, because I've seen way too many victims. Well, listen, again, thank you for coming into the pastor's office today and talking to us about the Santuli case and about this issue of hazing. We're going to be keeping that family and keeping you in prayer as we go forward. And if there's any way that we can be of assistance in the future, please don't hesitate to call on Philly's favor. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Maybe some laughs while you are listening to Philly's favor. Son.